Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who have great personalities Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, let's get it going here. It is Wood Talk number 211, January 12th, 2015. On today's show, we're talking about pairing with Japanese chisels, dealing with overwhelming fear of sawdust piles, lumber checking, and wood plugs for stretched ears. That's right, I said stretched ears. That's a thing, in case you didn't know. Uh, All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Uh, Brusso has been making high-precision hardware here in the U.S. for over 20 years. When you spend weeks crafting that perfect box or cabinet, why would you use anything but the highest quality hardware? The entire line is available in brass and stainless steel at brusso.com. And hey, while you're there, be sure to check out those new knife hinge installation templates. As a special offer for Wood Talk listeners, use the code WOODTALK at checkout for 10% off. And we'd also like to thank an individual, Nick Carruthers. Thank you so much for a generous donation. And you can make one too if you want to. Help us out with a little recurring donation and a small amount at woodtalkshow.com. You'll see the links over there in the side column. And uh, that's always great. We we appreciate that help muchly. And I think we should just jump right into the good stuff here, guys. What's on the bench? Let's do it. And what's on my bench? Let me think. A lot of website stuff this past week, so I haven't honestly done very much. Uh, I did go in the shop today to take a picture of a couple chisels for an article, and that's really about it. Not a whole lot of woodworking in my life, so I won't waste too much time. And we have a lot of voicemails coming later, uh, so let's just move right on to Shannon and skip me. Well, I finished a project that I started three years ago. Hey, oh, it was exciting. Nice. It was it was a project that I started primarily just to demonstrate my joinery bench. So it's it's kind of stupid because the project itself really wasn't that big of a deal. But it (laughs) you know it just it walks you through everything from sawing parts to size to milling lumber to cutting dovetail joinery and grooves and everything using nothing but the joinery bench. And you know I started it and bunch of other projects came up. A shopper model came up. So it was actually. It's kind of fun. I'm editing it now, and it's like f- footage from 2012, mm-hmm. 2013, and 2014. So it's a um, it's it's fun to edit. It's uh, kind of a color matching nightmare, but that's all right. <laughs> that's what, what I would like to see is is you have to go back in and reshoot a part, and then like do a whole talking thing and try and you know de age yourself <laughs> to match that. That <laughs> little, would be little awesome. CGI action. That'd be great. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Nice. I'm sure there's got like one extra, like some sort of line someplace, a worry line, probably from, you know, a couple of years of having to do the show with us. Well, he calls that the, uh, calls it pounds a- from where I was back in 2012. So that's just a matter of stretching the frame out a little bit. Yeah. He calls those Hantle school lines. <laughs> yeah. Hantle school that's lines. It. <laughs> I have my guild lines. He has his Hantle school lines. <laughs> cool. This one right here, this was from the pairing accident of late 2013. <laughs> Here's my DDoS wrinkle. Uh, <laughs> That's a nice, nice one. <laughs> cool. What about you, Matt? Uh, well, for me, of course, uh, this neck of the woods, actually pretty much anybody around this area, we have been snowbound, and that's not really too much of an exaggeration. Uh, so the kids luckily got to stay home. I, on the other hand, had to try and drive out there and went insane. And I think uh, physically I was so drained from all that that when the weekend rolled around, I also was doing some uh, website stuff and basically I walked past the living room. The kids were watching uh, apparently a marathon of horror movies and I said, you know what? That sounds good. Hmm. 
Nice. So I sat down and did that. But the other thing, uh, just just to speak of my amazement about this. So uh, we always hear from folks that have a garage shop, just like Shannon. Uh, but oftentimes we hear from folks that have an unheated garage shop and happen to be in a similar environment as mine. Well, I've never had tools out there really other than the stray hammer here and there. So I now have I have my lathe out in the garage because that way when I make a lot of dust, I'm not too freaking out about it. Nice. Uh, but the fact that it's been so cold we have like frost on the interior of the garage like the wood paneling that's in there occasionally goes white <laughs> from all the frost that's in there the the windows are completely frosted up you cannot see out of them whatsoever so my first thought was oh my god my my tools are probably rusted because i haven't really taken any precautions mm-hmm. other than simply throwing like one of those uh one of those rust prohibiting or in uh inhibiting covers over the top of the lathe and the tools itself and surprisingly Knock on wood. Maybe this is going to – I'm going to go out there after the show and discover there's a ton of rust. But that thing has actually kept the rust at bay even with the amount of moisture that's been sitting in my garage. Nice. Very yeah, cool. cool. Very excited about it because otherwise I thought, well, we're going to be having a lesson on rust removal. Again, because we do that every couple of months. Exactly. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you think that's bad. I actually couldn't wear shorts today. Oh my gosh. Oh so, Lord, Mark, how are how you surviving? Yeah, I mean, frankly, it's a little rough. And uh, wait, 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 wait. Now, you couldn't wear shorts because it's so hot you just chose the Speedo? <laughs> that's right. I'm just wearing my underwear today. That's that's what I thought. <laughs> Thanks for that. Now I don't have to worry about dinner anymore. Oh man, no, it's yeah. actually it's nice here, man. It's like in the seventies. Uh, a couple weeks ago we had some uh, a cold spell where it got down to the forties and I actually had frost on my windows in Arizona. I'm like, what is this white stuff? My son, my son had no idea. He's never seen this before in his life. <laughs> so that was an interesting experience, but yeah. I've, Did you just pick him up and have him start licking off the windshield? Just like, enjoy it. This is natural uh, snow cone. Yeah, I just brought some lemon juice out, sprayed it on the window and let him go to town on it. It's a, yeah. It's like a little snow cone or a giant snow cone. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move into what's new. We've got a couple links that we could share here, Matt. Um, I assigned you to that first one. I don't know who put that in there, but if you want it, take it. Okay, well, Blaze J sent this into us, and it's a link over on YouTube, and he says it's a turning of a big apple. Seriously, it, it's a giant apple that's being turned. Uh, so if you are looking for a turning video, and who isn't these days, mm-hmm. this might be one you want to check out. Nice. That sounds cool. Uh, I've got one here from a Japanese timber frame joinery thing. Like This channel is fantastic. It's just a, a bunch of amazing joints uh, at a level. I mean, it's, we're talking large timber frame joints here that... I think if we were just to try these on smaller pieces of wood where it theoretically would be easier, we'd still be hard-pressed to get these things to come together as clean as they're able to get them in, the, in the, many of these videos that they have there. So we'll put a link to one of the videos, but definitely subscribe to that YouTube channel. Um, you won't be able to read any of it, but you'll certainly be able to understand what's going on in the videos. Really amazing craftsmanship. Sweet. Cute. Good stuff for watching while you're at work and you can't have the sound up. Uh, yeah. Because yeah, you can't you, understand you, it. You don't need sound. It's just tap, tap tap. That's right. about all you hear. Well, I got uh, an email or uh, whatever. Uh, somehow Daniel contacted me through one of those many social type channels about this uh, BBC series called Secrets of the Castle. And if, you, if you've watched any of this stuff, they've it's these three, what they call themselves, experimental archaeologists. They've done, they run Victorian Farm and Edwardian Farm where they basically go back and and live in a specific time period. Well, they've gone all the way back to the 12th century now and are living at a castle. And apparently they're building a castle. It's like a 25-year project that this archaeological team is doing in France. Hmm. And these three just kind of drop in like 17 years on after the hard work's been done. 
and kind of live in a castle. But there is lots and lots and lots of gratuitous woodworking in this. Um, You know, of course, it's all hand tool stuff because it's supposed to be in the 13th century. But it is really very cool because, you know, they build a crossbow and they try it out and then they do some timber framing stuff. And, of course, there's lots of blacksmithing and tile making. It's just fun. It's a if, if you've never seen this series or whatever you call it, um, where these three experimental archaeologists, archaeologists, that's hard to say, go play <laughs> in some time period. It's, it's just really well done. And you could very easily waste an entire day because I think there's six or seven episodes of an hour a piece. So nice. Check that out. Do you think back then that the, the woodworkers of the time were as uh, self-righteous as hand tool woodworkers are today? Actually, well, I don't know whether self-righteous, but they were pretty important people. Uh, well, yeah, um, sure. I, mean, I, I bet they were more, time, cons- they're probably more concerned systems. about who was uh, uh, wearing the right tweed and right. making sure that their cap was on. You, sir, may be working really hard with that plane, but your necktie is not tied. You horrible person. <laughs> or, or the people who, uh, I guess, you know, once they started to use metal blades for cutting things, do you think the people who were like, no, 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 we're sticking with rocks. That's much better. You guys with these blades things, you're a bunch of jerks. You don't know how, how this woodcrafting thing is done. <laughs> right. Although there is an interesting segment in one of the episodes there where they talk about blacksmiths and how blacksmiths were actually thought to be supernatural because people just couldn't <laughs> grasp because they could bend metal. <laughs> they dig they dig dirt out of the ground and they you know smelt it into this stuff and turn it into an axe and they just figured that must be black magic of some sort. So people yeah, used to yeah. like take their sick children to the blacksmith to have him lay hands on them or something. So yeah, <laughs> if anybody crazy. was self-righteous, it was the blacksmith. That's awesome. Well, I guess you. everything is magic until you understand it. Uh, hey, come here, son. Let me hit you with this hammer that will cure you of your ills. That's right. And, and <laughs> it will add three more, but it will cure you of the other one. <laughs> You'll forget about the, the one you came in here for. Right. Nice. I just feel like taking shots at people today. I'm in a feisty mood. All right, right. let's move into our kickback. We've got quite a bit, and our our previous discussion that we had last week about uh, furniture quality and fine furniture probably generated the most feedback and kickback that we have seen in uh, in, in a very long time, Uh, maybe since the first first episode about Matt's stretchy pants. It's Um, very possible. I think there was one before, but I cannot remember what it was because it had so little of an impact. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, really, thank you, everybody, for the the feedback on this. So we've got a couple of voicemails. uh, We And Shannon wanted us to make sure we mentioned that, you know, if you want to, go to the post for 210, episode 210, uh, Giant Hairy Toddler, and feel free to continue in that discussion. Uh, We may have lost a couple comments, unfortunately, when we made a big change at the Wood Whisperer website, but um, it's safe to leave comments now. And keep that conversation going. It's really interesting to hear what people have to say. There's some good stuff going on on Facebook on this same vein. There's a lot of really good ideas being thrown around out there and a lot of different, like, um, practical uh, examples of what could be fine furniture and what couldn't. And a couple of conversations that are kind of mind expanding, if you will. Um, Sure. So, yeah, it's cool to see that kind of conversation. There's just no way we can regurgitate it all here. No, but we actually so, have so in quite other a words, bit. folks, you're welcome. You're <laughs> welcome for getting the conversation started. You're welcome. Now talk yeah. amongst yourselves. Well, we actually do have quite a bit to share, so let's get to it. Uh, the first one is a voicemail kickback from Brian. Hey, fellas. Uh, it's Brian from Boston. Uh, just listening to this previous week's show, discussion of what is uh, fine furniture. Uh, love the discussion, and here's a comment that you've never heard before. Uh, the whole thing made me think of pornography. 
And more specifically, uh, Justice Potter's famous uh, quote in the 1960s Supreme Court case in which he said something to the effect of, I can't define hardcore pornography, but I know it when I see it. And the I know it when I see it standard has been used in, in many other areas, and uh, I think it applies here too. Pretty tough to define exactly what fine furniture is, but I think we can all... Well, maybe we can't agree, but I think you just uh, you just know it when you see it. Uh, anyway, just wanted to throw that two sets in there. Uh, once again, love the show. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. You, you know who else was able to identify pornography like like that, like crazy? My mom. Every time she walked in, she's like, that's porn. I'm like, uh, you're right this time. Yeah, I think moms have like a built-in porn detector uh, that we all get to experience, us, us little dirty boys. Um yeah, that is actually really insightful. It is one of those things that you know it when you see it. The problem is we definitely don't all agree on what we know when we see it. <laughs> what is what I mean? hardcore porn and what isn't? <laughs> That's yeah, true. I'd always point out, Mom, this is the Sears catalog. Please yeah, settle down. <laughs> yeah, trying to bring it back to woodworking here, guys. Oh, yes. Oh. No. <laughs> oh, you should have played that then. <laughs> yeah, right. But going back to that, seriously, it's, it's definitely one of those uh, beauties in the eye of the beholder. Sure, yeah. And we got another uh, kickback here from Michael. Christmas, I received Peter Collins' book on why we make things and why it's important. After reading it twice, I moved on to a book that he referenced often, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig. The book talks quite a lot about quality, but never says what it is. I think Persig puts it down best when he states, quality is a pre-intellectual reality. Shannon had talked about eating food with his friends. His friends have an educated palate, so they can taste the different seasonings in food. Well, he just knows that it tastes good. Students of wood are always looking at the construction and design of a chair in a restaurant, while the diner who sits in it just knows that it's comfortable. The more you know, the more crucial you are. There's no definition for fine furniture except that it brings happiness to the owner whether it be made of ten-penny nails, pocket screws, or mortise and tenon joinery. A craftsman is one who makes something well just for the simple fact of making it well, regardless of the medium or fashion in which they make it. I really enjoy your show, guys. Keep it up, long-time listener, and I will continue listening. Very Thanks nice. very much. Thanks for that, Michael. Um, good book, by the way. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Mm -hmm. Very good book. I need to read that again. And I've got uh, Peter Korn's book, but I, I don't think I've made it all the way through. Um, That's a good book, too. But It is. It is. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is better. Read that. Okay. I will do that. <laughs> uh, all right. Where are we here? So that, that was the first two kickbacks. We've got a couple more that we'll read. Uh, just so many good points that people were making on this. We want to share them. Uh, Gerald wrote in. He says, because materials, construction methods, and styles are always... Uh, changing, we have to look towards a definition that transcends these things. I think the ancient Roman architect Vitruvius, wasn't he on the Lego movie? I, I think you might be right there. The old Definitely. wise guy, yeah. Uh, he said it best, uh, buildings and by the by extension furniture need to be three things, firmitas, utilitas, and venustas, uh, roughly translated, yes, roughly translated as durable, functional, and beautiful. The furniture from Target that Shannon talked about may be beautiful and functional, but it's not durable. Metal draw guides uh, may be durable and functional, but not beautiful. Most modern studio art furniture in a museum may be durable and beautiful, but often not functional. You guys, you guys all kind of came to the conclusion, but here it is from an ancient dead guy, so that you know it's true. All right. <laughs> 
Oh, cool. Well, I bet if those drawer guides, those metal drawer guides were made from a blacksmith uh, turn of the century, like a couple <laughs> centuries ago, they probably would have been like, oh, my gosh, that guy is magical. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so they're automatically magical. So anyways, the next one came in from Chris. And he says, I'm a total noob woodworker. My first project ever was a changing table slash dresser, dresser, dresser I made as a gift for my sister. I was just wanting to build something solid that looked nice and would last for a few years. As I was building, I tweaked it here and there, adding different features. It was turning into quite the piece. I got it done and delivered it to her. After the tears and the, oh, my God, I can't believe you, you built this with your own bare hands. She called it an heirloom piece. I guess as a noob, I consider fine furniture fine furniture to be just that, a solid, well-built piece that someone makes that makes someone go, wow. 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 I, yeah, I've never heard. Actually, when I hear wow, it's like, wow. You really were How is that wow. standing up? It took you that long to make that? Yeah, that would uh, <laughs> Norm does it in 30 minutes. Wow, what beautiful grain. When are you going to paint it? Mm. <laughs> All right, this is from Chris from Delta Junction, Alaska. I don't know if that was important, but I found it. It is very important. Mm-hmm. He says, you guys are awesome. That's why that's important. Perfect. I, I wanted to add a comment on your discussion about what makes something fine furniture. For me, the golden rule would be something that stops being fine furniture when the cost or speed of production becomes one of the main concerns making the piece. For example, a piece that was designed from the beginning to use pocket hole joinery and the joinery is done correctly would, of course, be fine furniture. Whereas if a piece was designed to have mortise and tenon joinery and pocket screws were used to replace the mortise and tenons without further thought to making it a working design... It would not be, would not be fine furniture. Maybe this is a little close to Matt's, if it looks fine and works fine, then it's fine attitude for Mark and Shannon. Just kidding. Mm-hmm. Keep up the great work. Wish I was there. Wish there were seven sets of clones for each of you that I would put out a show every day of the week. That If there were, then we much. wouldn't have to do anything because there were seven of them and we would just sit back and be like, go on, clones, do a show. Yes. But you know what? Five with me would... Five of me would be really miserable because five of me would have to go to work. Oh, that's true. Oh, that's terrible. Only one day a week, though, so it's not so bad. That would be awful. All right, we've got one more voicemail here. uh, Kick back again, but this one is about uh, clarification on the tenonings bottoming out that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Okay. Hey, guys. This is the OCD Woodworker, formerly known as Jason from Cheshire, Connecticut. Anyway, some kickback from last week's episode. The question was raised which instructor at Woodworking in America led me to believe that tenons need to bottom out in the mortise. It was either Will Neptune or Frank Klaus. I'm pretty sure it was Frank Klaus. And it's not that he said that specifically. He talked about having tenons going to a piece perpendicular from each other and mitering the tenons so that when they go into the mortises, the two miters kind of line up inside, and my thought was, oh my God, how do you line that up, especially when you can't see it, when it's hidden in the wood, but then if no one sees it, who cares? But if you have OCD, of course you care if you know that it's not lined up perfectly, and how do you know if it's lined up or not lined up? If you have OCD and you you can't see it, it's just a a nightmare. Or spiraling. Uh, So anyway, I, I don't think it was that anyone said that specifically. I just it just kind of gave me the thought, like, is, are these supposed to meet inside? Is the regular tenant supposed to bottom out? And, you know, Frank, he can be pretty persuasive. You know, this is the right way to do it because Frank said it is right. So, anyway, uh, 
there's that. And uh, talk to you guys soon. Thanks. Cool. So I, I have a feeling that Jason's OCD kicked in when he needed to clarify us on what the clarification is. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. All right. Next one here is actually a twofer. I'm going to read David's comment, but Jason from Smelly Gilroy also wrote in with a very similar recommendation. This is in reference to Todd's end grain table problem that we discussed last show uh, where he didn't want to see the end grain. Um, David says a solution could be to cut a small piece from each end of the tabletop and miter the off cut to the end grain uh, using splines, biscuits, or dominoes for strength and stability, thus creating a wraparound effect similar to what's used when making the sides of a small box. The mitered piece need only be as long as the thickness of the board, so the overall effect would be that you've got a table atop that sort of has the grain just flowing over the edge. No end grain would show. That's kind of cool. Good idea. That's a good idea. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And you know, such the, a stupid, simple solution. I can't believe we didn't think of it. It is. But also, it is a little bit tricky across end grain to get a, a miter that, that's that perfect, that you would actually have a nice continuous joint with no gaps. Uh, and especially that little piece that you get, that end grain piece that's going to be comprised of a couple of, you know, net more narrower boards to make up that full width. Um, that's a little bit tricky with all that end grain. But Obviously, it can be done. Cool idea, but definitely going to take a, a good lots of good lots setup. of tinted epoxy. There you go. That's always the secret to success. Yeah. Okay. Let's move into our official voicemail uh, questions here. Only one of them from uh, I, can, I didn't, didn't understand his name, so I'm calling him Stretched Ears Guy. You'll see why in a second. <laughs> Hello, this is Will in Stockton, California. I have stretched ears, and I'm considering making my own uh, plugs, which are just round, uh, basically dowels, but, uh, you know, there's a concave shape to them, so they stay in your ears. And I was wondering what types of wood would be safe to use um, that would be touching my skin uh, pretty much all the time. And I imagine that I would leave them unfinished, but maybe there's something uh, I should use to finish them. Also, uh, I've one of my working books shows a mini lathe built on a drill press, and I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on that. Thank you. Bye. All right. Interesting question there. Now, here's the thing. I would go with food safeness rules on this one, you know, so your domestics are probably your best bet for skin contact. And, you know, maple is, it seems to be one of the most, I guess, if you want to call it inert kind of woods, like there just isn't much going on with hard right. maple. So my recommendation would be to stick with the stuff we know is safe for food contact and maple would be a primary choice. And I wouldn't even finish it because you're going to get your earlobe juice on it and, uh, <laughs> you're naturally going to put a little patina on there with your, with your dirty earlobes. Um, <laughs> so I wouldn't use any like oils on there or anything. Cause that just adds extra stuff that you don't need on there. Well, um, you know, it, when I originally uh, a couple of years ago, when I did the whole wooden ring uh, video, I was contacted by somebody who was one interested in making wooden rings. And in the conversation, they were explaining that they also make these uh, ear gauges mm -hmm. uh, that you would put in there and they make them from wood. And they talked about that very specifically, that it's really cool to have these exotics, but oftentimes people might have a natural reaction to it. And I do believe they pretty much mirrored exactly what you said about, you know, thinking about. Uh, woods that have like a, a nut, so like a walnut or anything like that, uh, may tend to suddenly discover certain allergies. Or yeah. I'm wondering also if woods that like, especially like an oak that has like a was it tannin? Isn't that the uh, what mm -hmm. we usually run into, especially mm -hmm. with yeah. staining or something like that? There's an issue in there. Again, the oils and stuff. That it's amazing what you suddenly discover you're allergic to uh, when you put them <laughs> in the wrong places. Uh, I imagine <laughs> which is, too, which is why I would wonder. I mean, I agree with. 
with Mark on the <clears throat> the noble wood. Maple would be on the far right of the periodic table and the noble gases come no. to be right up there with hey, the blacksmiths. Hey, you're not the science nerd here. Back off. Hey, I can be. I play one on TV. Stick with the um, music. But but I think what more importantly is maybe you should put some finish on it. Maybe mm. a couple coats of shellac because we know that's what they coat like Advil with and some candies and things like that. So mm. it's probably okay. I mean, for instance, if you – like in Matt's example with rings, if you did use an exotic species, I would just make sure that you had a good uh, layer of shellac over top of it so that you – you don't get that kind of transference. You're still kind of playing with fire there. But I think if you do the whole belt and suspenders thing, choose a nice inert wood and then put a couple of coats of shellac on it, you should be even even better off. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's going to get all nasty anyway. So don't put too much thought into it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know what your ears look like here, man. Dude, you <laughs> think about nastiness going you wedge, on there. You wedge a piece of wood around your skin and you leave it there. That's going to get nasty. Unless you take it out every night and clean it. I don't know the process. I don't have stretched ears. My ears are just naturally big. But, um, you know, it's it's just, just the way it works. If you have like a, a hole in your ear that's not filled with an earring and it just sits there eventually, if you squeeze that, you've got gunk in there from just like dead skin cells and mixing with oil and stuff like that. And it's gross. Yep. I, I took my earrings out years and years, easily a couple of decades ago, and stuff still manages to kind of uh, out of there. I'm yeah, like, oh, wow, it's where gro- did that come from? Totally gross, but you got to keep on it. I've got holes in my ears, too, and I do the same thing. You got to like, make sure the holes stay clean. Anyway, gross. Wow. Yeah, uh, but even more reason not to eat dinner after this show. I'm always freaked out about the stuff in my belly button, and now you really got me freaking, <laughs> freaking out. Well, I don't know if we helped <laughs> if we helped stretched ears guy, but um, yeah, stay with the stay with the safer woods. I think it's a good bet. Now, what was this other thing about a oh, yeah, that's right. press lathe or something like that? Do you guys know what he's talking about? I haven't seen anything well, about they that. They have a they have like attachments for you to turn like vertically mm-hmm. you know, take right. your drill press and you essentially have like a tool rest type thing. Um, I've heard from people that it's really very difficult to do because mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're, you're fighting gravity with the the chisel. So it can be a little hard to do. I, I don't, I couldn't tell from his question if he's talking about like repurposing a yeah. drill press and like turning it. it on side, in which case that's a lathe, you know, it's, it's a motor and a spindle. It is pretty much the same construction if I understand it correctly. Um, I would be a little hesitant to to try it as an add-on. It's kind of like the whole mortising attachment to a drill press. It ends up being more of a pain in the butt to set the thing up and break it down. And, you know, in the end, a midi lathe is not that expensive. Maybe yeah. it's worthwhile just buying a mini lathe. Right. Well, and uh, also with a lathe, a lot of times you want that tailstock support. Yeah. And how do you, I guess maybe you can, you can put something together, but right out of the, you know, if you're just kind of turning on some sort of tool rest, what do you have supporting the, you know, the other, I guess you just would be limited in what you can do with it. Yeah. I think, I think there's something like this kit or whatever has like a a dead center type thing and maybe it's magnetic and it attaches to the table. So there is, there is support on either side of the spindle, but automatically you're talking about a really, really short, uh, bed for lack of a sure, better sure. term so you can only turn you know really little things there which Pen, i suppose if all you want to do is turn pins or whatever but uh, i don't know it just sounds like more trouble than it's worth frankly yeah. interesting okay well uh, let's jump into our email first question here i've got from rick he says i recently received a leave valley gift card and was interested in buying a one and seven sixteenths japanese push chisel 
I typically pair uncomfortably with my Lee Nielsen beveled edge chisels. I was ready to plunk down the card when I realized there was only a single hollow with no ribs in the center. I'm sure I want it, but not sure if registering anything less than the full width of the chisel is going to be a problem. Uh, do I have a real concern here, or should I just get a narrower push chisel? Uh, now, I have a lot of Japanese chisels in my shop, and I do use them for pairing operations. It's obviously not going to be as good as a dedicated um, tool for that that's meant for, but it still works. Um, you know, most times, if you have, let's say, three quarters of your reference surface, you're usually okay. Uh, this kind of relates to like when we flatten a big board, and you don't really have to flatten it all the way to send it through the planer, right? You just kind of flatten most of it, uh, especially if it's kind of, um, you know, sort of concave or convex. Either way, bottom line, you only need a couple points touching so that it's stable. The same kind of thing can happen with a chisel back. So as long as it's touching at the front edge, which it most likely will be, and then you're touching on one side, you're going to actually have most of the support that you need. Now, there may be exceptions where you have to be careful not to let the chisel kind of twist into that hollow uh, and focus your pressure in the right place where you know your contact points are. But I don't think it's going to be a major problem for most work. I mean, do you guys see that coming up as a major issue? I I don't at the moment. I'm having a hard time picturing one. Not really. I mean, I guess it it all depends. It depends on what you're pairing. Yeah. You know, if you're doing very large surfaces like timber framing stuff, then yeah, I think it might be a problem because you've got more of a you want more of a reference surface on the chisel. But for most of our typical furniture stuff, that reference surface that you're going to reference the chisel back onto is so small to begin with that. I really, I mean, he's talking about a one in 17, one, one and a half. Let's call it basically. one and a half. Yeah. <laughs> a one and a half ish chisel. I mean, that's a pretty wide chisel. So, I mean, it's almost if you're, a plane with no body. <laughs> yeah. If you're running into an instance where that, that hollow is getting in the way, then your reference surface is so small that you probably should just switch to a narrower chisel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I guess he might have something specific he needs that wide of a chisel for. Uh, but right. for me, the ideal pairing chisel is actually going to be a, quite a bit narrower than that. I, the most I would really want, at least for what I do, is probably about an inch. Um, but still, even at that one and seven sixteenths, again, you've got that whole front before the hollow that's going to make contact. And then you have at least, in most cases, you'll have at least one side. That's usually enough to hold it steady if you put your pressure in the right place. Well, and you look at you know, Japanese woodworking in general is so chisel intensive that mm -hmm. they do so much pairing work and so much of the work that we would do with a specialized plane they're doing with the chisel. So yeah. they haven't run into any problems in a couple thousand years. So hasn't stopped okay. them. So geez, Rick, geez. All right. Yeah. They seem like they've been around for a while. This would be a great one for say, uh, Wilbur and we know you're listening. Yeah, we do. All right, yeah. Matt, you're up. Okay. Well, this question came in from Hubert and he says, I have a small garage workshop. Nothing fancy like you guys have. Fancy? Which one of us has a fancy shop? Not you mean me. like the small garage workshop that I'm in? Yes. Well, I call that cozy. Shut up, you guys. <laughs> Anyways, I know, I know says, what I love saying. working with wood, as we all do. But more and more, I find myself not wanting to start any projects because I know I won't have time to fully clean the garage afterwards. Mostly the major criminals are a contractor table saw, power miter saw, and a router. I realize a completely sterile environment is impossible. Any advice is always appreciated. Well, I'll give you advice, but I think it's going to be specifically about this. I could give you other advice for other things. I know you don't want to <laughs> hear it, you probably don't want. <laughs> right. So we'll just keep it to the woodworking stuff. There you go. Anyways, 
you know, like you said, uh, keeping a completely sterile environment is nearly impossible. It's a woodworking shop. And I'll be completely honest, I do have plenty of times down in my shop where I know I need to get something done, but I just don't want to deal with the sawdust afterwards because I know I won't have time to necessarily clean it up. But unfortunately, quite honestly, as far as I'm concerned, it, it, it's kind of part of the game. It ends up happening. So... One thing I do quite frequently, and it drives me insane once in a while, but it helps quite a bit in the end, is in between big sawdust producing operations, I take the time to kind of at least get the piles organized or maybe do a quick run up, run through job with my shop vac to kind of take care of things. It tends to add more time to my uh, clean or to less time I have to actually work on the project itself since I'm kind of splitting it with the cleaning, but it helps in the end because it's one less thing I have to worry about. So that for me is a strategy that I have actually uh, worked to overcome this anxiety about, oh my God, I did all this great stuff. Oh, look at, look at the mess I have to clean up. <laughs> now, with that said, there's also things like he specifically, you mentioned a contractor table saw and a power miter saw and a router. With the contractor table saw, I'm not sure what style of saw that you have, what specific model you have. I know a lot of the more modern ones tend to have at least some sort of dust collection. It's not the greatest in the world, but some sort of dust collection. If it doesn't, like my old uh, contractor saw that I had, the bottom was completely wide open. Something as simple as putting a box underneath there tends to help at least collect some of the dust in there, but there's so many fine dust flying up all over the place, but at least the big stuff is now in a pile in a box. It's a lot easier to pick up and move. It also is really easy to kind of put a platform between the saw body itself and the base and then attach uh, like a hose. You can get those uh, hose uh, attachments, say like at a home center or something. Again, it doesn't eliminate all of the dust, but you might be surprised at how much less is now piling up on the floor around you. In fact, it's so much less that you can actually just sweep it up with a broom and get it taken care of in no time flat. The miter saw, I know that there's shrouds and stuff like that out there. Again, I don't really, I don't know. In fact, if anything, the miter saw is one of the reasons why I really, really hate going in there because even when I have my hose attached to it, it's still going all over the place to some degree or another. And the same thing with a router. But again, with those two saws, that's where my strategy of I get done making all my cuts with those or all my routing action and I immediately clean up and I feel a little bit better about the situation. So unfortunately, you know, it's just one of those one of those things you have to learn to deal with. <laughs> you know what? The fix here is a leaf blower. And as long as you don't really like your neighbors very much, open up the garage doors, blow it out and blow it to the sides. I do have to say that's the one thing I love about having the lathe out in the garage is I have done that a couple of times. I'm like, this is so awesome. They'll never notice. <laughs> they will never notice. Yeah. That's tough though. If if I can add one thing, one little thing that I've done, cause I've run into this as well is I just have a, I have a, a little broom that I have in the shop and I just kind of go to the trouble of not picking it up, but just kind of sweeping it into a pile out of the way so that a, I'm not tracking it into the house, but it just gets it, it keeps it under control. And a lot of times I'll leave the pile there. And it's one of those things where there's always a time where you've got five or 10 minutes and you just go into the shop and you're just happy to be in the shop. You're like looking around at the walls or funneling your tools or whatever. We've all done it. Don't judge. But if you've got that little pile of sawdust, you know, you can go in and clean it up at a later date. But as long as it's not kind of everywhere, 
um, and you've done that little step to sweep it up in between things. Also, I might add sweeping up the floor in between tasks is a good idea for when you have that blowout and that little chip falls on the floor that you could glue back in if only you could find it. Right. <laughs> Having a recently swept floor is really helpful for finding that chip that you want to glue back in. So mm-hmm. just keep a little broom nearby and sweep it into a pile you know, somewhere out of the way in between tasks. Well, you know, and yep. on the other side, speaking of brooms, don't discount the value of a really wide push broom because at the end yeah. of the day, if you're trying to do a garage, I mean, you can get a full garage done in just a couple of sweeps up and down. Oh, yeah. um, and if you have a regular size broom, I mean, I know it sounds stupid and we're belaboring a point here, but if you have a smaller broom, it takes a long time. You know, you're doing four or five, six times as many strokes with the broom to get the same surface area that a good push broom will do. So I love your idea, Shannon, to just kind of have a place that's okay mm-hmm. to have a little bit of dust accumulate and just kind yeah. of push all the shavings and everything there. And then on the weekend or something, when you have time to clean it up, go clean it up. Uh, but a big push broom kind of consolidates everything and makes it a lot faster. Well, you know and, who else likes shavings? The problem with the big push broom is when you have a small shop like me, it can't get into the nooks and crannies yeah, like in between the bench and, you know, the saw bench or whatever. So I have both and I use it to pull the little broom to pull it out of the holes and the cracks and things like that. And then the push broom to push it off to the end of the garage near the door. Right. Well, you know, yeah. two things there, Shannon, what you need to do is get one of those wide brooms and then just put hinges on them so you can just swing it around to make it a smaller one and then snap it back out full size so you can still take advantage <laughs> Project video. of the full what? width. That's, that's mind-blowing, Matt. Someone should invent that. Hold on. The ShamWow guy, guy could, could do that for totally. Don't release this show until I have a chance to get that <laughs> okay, we'll taken care of. We're going to wait. Uh, now, the other thing, though, I was thinking of is that Alex probably really appreciates Mount uh, Sawdust also. Yeah, but we don't. Yes, and then his mom appreciates it when he comes in the house and then lays on the carpet. Right. There you go. Oh, I have this big pile <laughs> of sawdust now in the living room. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. All right. This email comes from Tommy. I was recently given about 200 board feet of mahogany from a friend. Lucky. Yeah, lucky. Uh, The boards have been sitting in the basement of his house for 10 plus years from the previous owner who had just left them there. That guy's lucky too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) After moving all the lumber out of his basement to mine, I noticed that a large majority of them are all starting to check. And I was curious if the end grain needed to be sealed. I made sure to keep them off the concrete floor to avoid moisture issues. So all the boards are sitting on a pallet. Also, the environment is not drastically different from his basement to mine. If anything, my basement could be a tad warmer. I figured if they were sitting in his basement for that long and there were no signs of checking, then sealing up the ingrain shouldn't be an issue. Any thoughts? I chose this question because I hear this all day long, day in and day out in my day job, my night job, everything. There seems to be, you get a lot of these questions or statements on the forum. I just lucked into, or I was given such and such, and it's been in his barn or his shop or whatever for 20 plus years. So it's really stable. That is such a myth. (laughs) Wood does not get more stable as it gets older. Wood will always move. Wood is constantly picking up and dumping moisture. If you kiln dry wood, it will be more stable than air dry wood just because of the hardening and the fibers that happens when you get it down that low. Wood will not, unless you live where Mark is, wood will not naturally go to 6 to 8% moisture in most of the world. Unless you're in a really, really dry climate, it usually stops around you know, eight to 10%. In in my world, 11% is about ambient. All of the wood in my shop will eventually end up around 11%. Um, When you force it to go lower than that by kiln drying it, the fibers harden. So therefore, the wood is a little bit more stable, but it will continually 
pick up and dump moisture as the climate changes. So we don't know whether this was air-dried or, or kiln-dried mahogany, and it doesn't really matter because just because it's been sitting there for 10 years, yeah, it's stable because it's been in that environment for 10 years, assuming a pretty constant environment in a basement. But if you move it, it's going to it's going to change, you know, and if he says his, his basement is a tad warmer, well, that probably means there's a higher moisture content too. So it's in, inevitable that something's going to change. And I think anytime you don't anticipate using a board anytime soon, if you're just going to stick it in storage, I definitely think you should seal the ends. It's just, we'll think about it. What, how, how much time does it take as compared to the potential of losing a really valuable piece of mahogany? So this, this whole idea that, oh, it's been there forever and it's stable is just BS. Um, wood will always continue to move and you should always think about that. And if necessary, when you move it into the new shop, seal the ends, stack and sticker it and let it come into equilibrium with its new environment. Even though it may be, you may think it's the same. Maybe you've even taken moisture and temperature readings and averaged it out over the last six months, especially if you're an OCD woodworker. It doesn't matter. You've changed it. it. It changed the environment when you stuck it in the car and you drove it back to your house. Um, it's just belt and suspenders. Stack and sticker and seal those ends for a while, um, and you'll always end up happier. And uh, step three is send a few boards to the Wood Talk Boys. There you yeah. go. Absolutely. I mean, you <laughs> lucked into it. Why shouldn't we luck yeah, into it? pay it forward, dude. Let's go. All right. Speaking of paying forward, uh, you can support the show if you want to with a recurring donation. Just go to woodtalkshow.com, look over in the side column, and you should see a couple of links there to help you out with that. And you can also get a Wood Talk t-shirt at twwstore.com, or you could uh, even leave us a, a review. This is really, this one isn't painful at all. It doesn't cost you anything. You just go to the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and if you want, give us that nice five-star rating, just like Jeff in Oregon and Drew1790 did. Uh, Drew had some things to say. He said, entertaining and informative. Even if you have no idea how to cut half-blind dovetails, you'll enjoy the host's witty banter and helpful tips. These guys certainly know what they're talking about and also how to put on a well-thought-out show. Now, I'll agree with the well-thought-out show part. Uh, I'm not so sure about knowing what we're talking about. We kind of just make it up as we go. Yeah, pretty much. In fact, we're making this part (laughs) up right now, too. Exactly. So, Matt, how about you make up some contact info and we can pretend to get out of here? All right. Hey, folks, do you have comments, questions, or topic suggestions? Perhaps you want to continue that what is fine furniture discussion. You know what? There's several different ways to contact us. Actually, that fine furniture one, uh, listen for one of the last things I'm going to mention. That's where you can contact us. Anyways, you have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at kickback at woodtalkshow.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's shows or previous episodes, and this is where you're going to be able to continue the conversation about fine woodworking, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. Very nice. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. See ya. Hey everyone, Mark here. I've got a little favor to ask. We're running an anonymous survey to help better match our show with potential advertisers. Yeah, no one loves advertising, but this survey is going to prevent us from running ads for knitting suppliers and stretchy pants manufacturers. The survey takes just a minute or two to fill out, and it'll really help us in our mission to make the show successful for years to come. Plus, Matt's tacos aren't paying for themselves. 
Listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to podsurvey.com slash wood. That's podsurvey.com slash wood to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card.